1: This is an RNZ podcast.
2: Kia ora. Welcome to part two of the story of Patrick Heenan, the New Zealand born traitor who became an agent of Imperial Japan during the Second World War. In last week's episode, we heard about Patrick's childhood how he was bullied at school and became an officer in the British Indian Army. We told you how he seemed to develop a deep loathing of the racism and classism he saw in Britain, and how that encouraged him to befriend anti-British Indian nationalists. And most importantly, we told you how right near the beginning of the Second World War, he was recruited as a spy for the Japanese military. Patrick Heenan first becomes useful to the Japanese in 1941 when a large chunk of the Indian army is redeployed to British Malaya, a territory which included the island of Singapore as well as most of what's now Malaysia. Here's Singapore National University historian Brian Farrell.
3: The plan all along had been that the principal source of reinforcement for Malaya command the army forces defending Malaya uh, would be India and in fact one brigade was sent there right away in September 1939 just because war had broken out in Europe but when the situation turned dramatically for the worse in 1940 because of the German defeat of the armies of France in the spring of 1940 then efforts were made to try and build up the defenses in the far east as much as possible because it was obvious to the British Chiefs of Staff that The chances that Japan would try and exploit the situation in Europe had now dramatically increased. And for the army, the big problems were, of course, twofold. First, that the overall number one priority had to be the home defense of the UK, which by the looks of it now faced invasion and perhaps destruction. And number two, uh, they were never really intended to be the principal defense force for Malaya. That of course was supposed to be the Navy. But the Navy was now entirely pinned down defending the home islands and would not be able to carry out the strategy of sending a battle fleet to the Far East.
2: Because the British Navy is committed in Europe, the only Allied force which has a decent chance of fighting back a Japanese invasion is the Royal Air Force. This means the Indian Army has to defend air bases all over northern Malaya where the RAF can refuel and rearm. The commanders on the ground realise that if this defence is going to work, they need to set up an intelligence liaison unit so the army and RAF can coordinate properly. And who should volunteer for a role in that highly sensitive unit? But Patrick Heenan.
3: There isn't any evidence that he was uh, qualified for this kind of role at all. And that makes me think this wouldn't have been a popular duty among the line officers in the battalions because it wouldn't have been seen as the kind of thing that would get you promoted or would get you doing what you wanted to do, which was lead your rifle platoon or company in ground combat. So there probably weren't as many takers as there were posts. And when someone like Heenan put his hand up and said, I'll do it, that was probably very welcome. And
2: And even before this posting... There's sort of all these reports that he was doing suspicious stuff, heading up to the Thai border to to meet up with people and sort of generally acting in a suspicious manner.
3: There is that, yes. And he might have gotten away with that at the time because a lot of that was being done by a couple of dozen British officers who were doing it officially, (laughs) covertly but officially. Going on reconnaissance in Mufti in southern Thailand, some of it on behalf of the army, some of it on behalf of what would become the special operations executive. And you get the feeling that Heenan kind of slipped himself into the middle of that little parade of military tourists going into southern Thailand. But that there definitely are whispers of that, that he, again, he seemed to be spending his free time in rather extraordinary hobbies.
2: One of those extraordinary hobbies is photography, but Patrick isn't taking nice photos of Malaysian scenery. Long after the war ended, Patrick's commanding officer, Major French, wrote this in his memoir.
1: I had discovered that during my absence, Heenan had done two outrageous things. Firstly, he had taken a party of my troops on ground exercises and on these he had taken photographs of all the junctions and crossroads into Thailand whilst the signposts were still in position. These would of course have been removed in the event of a war. Secondly, whilst I was away, he had gone to the station commander and persuaded him that he had my permission to see my documents, highly secret and kept
2: in my command safe. Actually, Major French says Heenan tries to get into his safe and access those secret documents, not once, but twice. If that's true, Professor Brian Farrell says it's totally astonishing Heenan wasn't arrested then and there.
3: You do this once, and you're some sort of a fast-talking charmer who has the gift of the gap, and you may be able to bullshit your way out of that, although I don't know why anyone would be allowed to doing something like that. But twice? Yeah, you then have to ask, well, what's going on here? Just as a measure of sheer prudence, why didn't you have this guy behind bars right away? You're not in a position to take any chances. You're in the middle of a war which is going very badly for you.
2: Possibly part of the reason that Major France doesn't take action is that the British have a bit of a weird attitude towards counterintelligence in the lead-up to war with Japan.
3: They had three problems there. The first problem is that there were very strict instructions coming out from London that they were not to provoke war with the Japanese. Number two is that the existing British security service uh, forces in Malaya and in the region, particularly the SIS and MI5, were far more concerned about Chinese communists operating in Malaya than they were about the Japanese until the summer of 1940. So what resources they had were being devoted more to that threat than to the Japanese threat. And of course, the third problem is that they were really concerned about triggering unease among the local populations when, for example, the special operations executive was sent out to uh, the Far East in the spring of 1941. They ran into all kinds of problems from the aforementioned authorities who didn't want them going around uh, reconnoitering likely ambush sites or organizing weapons dumps or uh, preparing fallback positions for fear that this would spook the local populations, if you will. And all of that really got in the way of what, in retrospect, looks like what was required, a far more cold-blooded, hard-headed approach to sizing up the looming threat and getting ready to deal with it.
2: Major France doesn't just sit on his hands, though. He tries to find proof that Heenan is a traitor. In his memoir, he writes that he waits until Heenan goes drinking with some other officers, then searches his room.
1: We found a small Bible full of underlined sentences and an obvious code. Next, we found a portable typewriter. And in the baseboard, which was a file drawer, copies of SitRap. Situation reports which started Dear Mum. The rest was a report of our aircraft positions, strengths, and uh, a part of our aerodrome showing
2: bomb dumps, fuel store, etc., all marked with a cross. But again, astonishingly, Major French doesn't arrest Heenan. He plans to go to divisional headquarters with his evidence the next day. But that doesn't happen because the next day turns out to be a very eventful day.
1: December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire
2: of Japan.
1: The United States was at peace
2: with... Minutes after the attack on Pearl Harbour begins, the Japanese launch their invasion of Malaya. The RAF initially had 86 combat aircraft in northern Malaya. By the end of the first day, that number is cut in half. Twelve hours later, there are only 10 planes left. And according to Heenan's biography, Odd Man Out, the reefton born traitor is instrumental in the success of the Japanese attack. Odd Man Out quotes soldiers who say Heenan is caught using a secret radio transmitter right as the attack happens. Presumably, he's informing the Japanese about airplane movements at his airbase. Those same soldiers say airfields all across northern Malaya are strafed by Japanese warplanes with pinpoint timing, just as the British bombers are landing or taking off, right when they're most vulnerable. RAF pilots say Japanese warships appear to know Allied recognition codes and are sending signals trying to trick the pilots into thinking they're friendly. Dead Japanese soldiers are found with detailed maps of northern Malaya, including the positions of Allied defences, machine gun posts, pillboxes, that sort of thing. The Allied defence of northern Malaya collapses in just a few days. And, in theory, Patrick Heenan could have played a crucial role in that collapse. One soldier who was in Malaya at the time went so far as to claim Heenan was in command of a network of spies operating all across the peninsula, feeding huge amounts of information to the Japanese. Odd Man Out's authors are careful to point out that many of these claims are unverified, But they do say this. Since Patrick's job gave him access to all the Allies' plans
1: for the air defence of northern Malaya, it must be assumed that these were passed on in full to the Japanese. Certainly, this would explain their remarkable success in destroying Allied aircraft so quickly, many of them on the ground. The results of this treachery can be seen in the Allies' lack of air superiority
2: throughout the campaign. 13,234 Allied soldiers were killed in the Malaya campaign, a further 10,000 were wounded, and 130,000 captured. Many of those men later died as Japanese prisoners. If what's claimed about Patrick Heenan's role in Malaya is true, how many deaths lie at his feet? But that role could be overstated. Professor Brian Farrell, along with a lot of other military historians, thinks Odd Man Out goes a bit too far when it talks about the wider significance of Heenan's treachery.
3: I think they exaggerated the importance and the impact of Heenan, but at the end of the day, that's not really the point. They found an interesting story, they had a good crack at it, and it should be a larger part of the memory, which for some reason it doesn't seem to be
2: they do sort of hedge their bets a bit where they sort of say it's impossible to tell exactly how big of a role he played, but they sort of spell out the possibility that he was virtually instrumental, at least in the first few days of, of the invasion.
3: I actually find that's preposterous. The advantages that the Japanese had were so overwhelming and he was at one airfield. So the most that he could have done was give them, Oh, a few minutes warning less than 30 of the takeoffs and landings of the units at that one particular airfield. Now, was that useful information that the Japanese were happy to have? I've no doubt that it was. Did it make any kind of a significant difference to their ability to blow the RAF out of the sky in North Malaya in the first three days? I wouldn't say that, no. I would put that more in the minor category, in the this made a bad situation, maybe worse category.
2: Heenan is arrested on the first day of the Japanese invasion. The details of what happens next are even more murky than the rest of the story. As we mentioned at the start, this is an extremely chaotic situation. Allied troops are being pushed back. In some cases, they completely desert their positions. The RAF has been blown out of the sky. All we have to go on are a few pieces of fragmentary evidence and a handful of eyewitness accounts recorded decades after the actual events. For one thing, we don't even know for sure if Heenan faces a court-martial. One source which claims he does is Major France's memoir.
1: I attended Heenan's court-martial as a key witness. He was found guilty of treason and condemned to be shot. It was a terrible experience as he had been a brother officer, but I felt relieved, if a little shattered when it was all over. His execution was held up by what I suppose is red tape. Details of the trial had to be sent back to London for confirmation of sentence, which took
2: some time. It was, however, confirmed in the end. The problem with this account is that it contradicts a lot of other stories which claim Heenan doesn't face a court-martial. There's also no documentary evidence that a court-martial happens.
3: The general understanding is that at the end of the day, Heenan doesn't face the court martial, which might have made all of this clear one way or the other, simply because he holds a substantive commission. And therefore, it would have required a panel of judges of no less than five full colonels to constitute a a proper due process court martial that would have given him military justice. And Malaya Command was just far too busy to organize anything of the sort.
2: So, did he not. Because, I mean, because according to France's. Diary. He did face a court martial. Did that? So the, did that never happen?
3: Uh, I don't know of any evidence bearing that out or corroborating it. And, and if and if he had, the only way we'll know is if there are files inside Malaya Command records that none of us have ever been made privy to that we won't see for a hundred years because court martial records are sealed for a hundred years. We won't know for sure until those records are opened in twenty forty two.
2: Oh, well, well, we'll wait on bated breath for that.
3: You and I can come back and do this again. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: <laughs> So, Major France, I mean, do you think there's any reason to disbelieve any of the stuff he writes in his memoir? I mean, I guess some of this comes back on him, right, for having a spy under his nose, basically.
3: And for that reason, no, I don't. And also, of course, he writes it after the fact. He doesn't just write all this right away in February and March 42, right? He clearly sits and thinks about it and it festers and it lives with him throughout the whole captivity period. And uh, all I can do is use my best educated guess here, having never met the man and only read this one thing written by him. But we don't have anything else against him. There isn't any other documentation in his army record that suggests anything. There isn't any uh And evidence presented by anyone else that there was any particular personal animosity between the two. And as you very rightly point out, to put all this down in writing and to make it, uh, to preserve it for all posterity, he must have known that people would make the comment that you just did. Well, you found this out rather late in the day, and isn't that a black mark on you? And therefore, shouldn't you hold your hand up as partly responsible for the damage he did?
2: So, this is a big problem. Major France's memoirs are one of the best sources we have for the details of Heenan's story. If he's not trustworthy, then how can we possibly know whether any of the story is true? What's more, there are other rumours about Heenan which are even less trustworthy, to the point of being completely unbelievable. For example, there's one story which claims he arranges to have pillboxes built out of substandard concrete so that they're more easily destroyed by bombers. That's provably false. Patrick Heenan had no power whatsoever to decide what materials pillboxes are made from. Another crazy story comes from a doctor called A.W. Franklin. In an interview with the authors of Odd Man Out, he claims that six months before the Japanese invasion, £40,000 are discovered in Patrick Heenan's bank account. Dr Franklin said...
4: Heenan was under suspicion from then on. He could not explain why this vast sum of money had suddenly appeared in his bank account. He said, oh, it was a gambling debt that had
2: been repaid. Professor Brian Farrell says that story can't possibly be true.
3: No, that's such a colossal sum of money that that would have tripped the biggest imaginable red flags in every security service file. That you know, I, I just can't. Four thousand pounds, maybe forty thousand pounds. How many years' pay is that for an army captain in 1941?
2: I mean, I was just—I was—I I was actually just in the process of trying to do the back of the envelope calculation and, and couldn't work it out. But I think it would work out to about two million New Zealand dollars or thereabouts. I mean. That's a hell of a lot of money. I wouldn't be at
3: all surprised, and any organisation that didn't see this as an immediate massive red flag deserves to be defeated. So no, I don't believe that, not for a moment.
2: Actually, my back-of-the-envelope calculation was wrong. £40,000 works out to nearly $3.7 million in today's money. The idea that the British authorities would let something that big slide, it's ridiculous. But... The same guy who tells us that unbelievable story, Dr. A.W. Franklin, is also the best source we have for the end of Patrick Heenan's story. As we said earlier, this is a second-hand account. Dr. Franklin says he heard this from an army sergeant who was there when it happened. In fact, Dr. Franklin says this unnamed sergeant is the person who killed Patrick Heenan. Dr. Franklin says he last saw Patrick in prison in Singapore on February 8th, five days before he died. At that time, he says Heenan is depressed, resigned to his fate. But in the next five days, as the Japanese continue to push in towards Singapore, Heenan's mood improves. By this time, Friday the 13th,
4: Heenan had changed from this very gloomy, morose, frightened officer and he'd got absolutely impossible, saying, well, you'll be in the bag soon, you'll be in prison, or you'll be
2: shot or something. He was quite infuriating. According to Dr. Franklin's second-hand story, Heenan is taunting his jailers. He knows the Japanese are winning. He's bragging about how he'll be sprung from prison and rewarded for his betrayal. So, Dr. Franklin says the jailers take matters into their own hands. They decided to carry out summary justice on this man who was getting so
4: cocky, he obviously was a spy. There was no doubt from his behaviour and everything else, so they decided to cast lots in some way. They did have a pack of cards, and it was decided that, as everyone, according to the sergeant, wanted to have the privilege and pleasure and honour, they would draw cards, and the sergeant won with a queen.
2: So it was he who had the pleasure. Dr. Franklin says Heenan is marched out to the waterfront. It's Black Friday, February 13th. The city of Singapore is in chaos. Japanese warplanes have complete air superiority. Their tanks and troops are starting to break through the Allied perimeter. One million people, most of them civilians, are crowding into less than five square kilometres at the southern edge of the city, trying to escape the Japanese advance. Allied troops are deserting en masse. Many of them are drunk and have started looting or forcing their way onto ships, attempting to escape. In just two days, the Allies will surrender the city. Patrick Keenan must have witnessed this scene firsthand as he's marched out to the harbour, but he never sees that surrender. He was told
4: to look at the setting sun because it was the last time he would see it. There was a revolver shot, he was given a push and went into a watery grave.
2: A watery grave. The exact same words used in that chilling postcard which was sent to Patrick's mother. We'll never know if this is really what happened, but, if you'll excuse the pun, it's an explanation that holds water.
3: I mean, there's no way that someone like him would have been allowed to, quote, get away with this. So in those chaotic last days in mid-February '42, when things had to be dealt with, um, it's not beyond imagination that someone simply told the provost Marshal, uh, take this man out and deal with him, and he got a pistol in the back of the head and pushed into the water.
2: I mean, it's sort of hard to believe anything different happening that them, for them to sort of, you know, waste valuable space on a ship trying to evacuate him when everyone, everyone in the city is trying to get out.
3: It absolutely wouldn't have happened. And they would also have had to consider what would have happened if people on the ship had found out who he was and what he was charged with.
2: The weird thing is that this story, despite all its dramatic twists and turns, was nearly forgotten. Aside from the biography we've been quoting from in this episode, there's been very little written about Heenan in the 76 years since he died. You might think that this suggests there was some kind of cover-up. Maybe the British authorities would embarrass that one of their officers turned out to be a traitor. But Professor Brian Farrell doesn't think that's likely.
3: I mean, many of the people who would have been in a position to know uh, didn't survive, right? or were in a Japanese prison camp. So what was there to cover up? And I imagine by the time people started hunting around for him in 1945, so much time had passed and there were so many cases of people who had fallen through the cracks and so little documentation and so little energy in finding out what happened to this one suspicious character. Uh, I'd like to see what the motive for the cover-up would have been.
2: This lack of evidence and lack of interest also probably explain one final twist in Patrick Heenan's story. If you go to the cringy Commonwealth war grave in Singapore, you'll find Heenan's name carved in stone, right alongside the names of other men who died defending the island, people who weren't traitors.
3: And it would take an act of Parliament and royal assent to remove it, which is using the word in its literal sense obnoxious, because his presence there profanes those who did their duty to their utmost and paid the ultimate price doing so. I can understand why it would take due process to remove his name, and I can understand why that can't happen because we don't have enough information. So it's one of those catch-22s that we'll just have to shrug our shoulders in frustration over.
2: As for Patrick's mother, Annie Carroll, the woman we started this podcast with, we don't know if she ever found out how or why her son died but maybe she was better off not knowing. Black Sheep is written and presented by me, William Ray. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. The sound engineer is Mark Chesterman. As always, you can find more Black Sheep at the podcast page at rnz.co.nz. You can also find lots of great other RNZ podcasts there. May I recommend a new one, Eating Fried Chicken in the Shower? Comedian James Nokise has a chat to all kinds of people about their experiences of mental health and personal struggle and how they overcame it, all while sitting in the shower eating fried chicken. Also, don't forget to subscribe and give us a rating for Black Sheep. Also, tell your friends about it. It's the best way to get the word out. Cheers. Bye now.
0: Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman.